From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A Colorado outdoorsman says getting fresh air doesn't have to include a mountain hike or even a city park. Then coronavirus has hit some nursing homes hard, but the state has been slow to release details about these outbreaks. Also, many of us are on the internet quite a lot these days. How's the internet handling the strain? The speeds are holding up well. There's not any trends that uh, make me worry in the least. And answering questions about why the state says construction is an essential business. One of the projects that we're doing right now is in one of the larger buildings downtown where we're doing an amenity center. Is that really a critical element in the Colorado landscape right now? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. With the world seemingly turned upside down, time alone in nature offers some solace. But not every Coloradan lives near a wide open space, an empty trail, or an outcrop to scramble. Author Craig Childs hails from just outside Norwood in southwest Colorado. He recently wrote an essay for High Country News. As COVID-19 spreads, how do you ethically get outdoors? Hi, Craig. Hey there, Avery. Describe for us where you live and how you're getting outdoors right now. Well, I'm fortunate to uh, have a lot of public land around me, uh, quite a bit of of BLM. So um, really, it's just taking a a walk from the house or driving down a dirt road and and peeling off on foot um, and and taking an hour or a half a day or a whole day and, and just wandering around and checking places out. And as beautiful as that sounds, you don't want people who live in big cities to come out and enjoy these particular open spaces. Why is that? Well, it's the same reason that I'm not leaving here and going to a, a, another spot, heading to southeast Utah and, and going into the desert, because um, you know, I, I think we need to be traveling locally right now. And, and any place that you can find to get out in your own spot is good. But going you know, through another town that, that is having its own issues, that, that doesn't want people uh, from coming from far away to their gas pumps, to their grocery stores. Uh, there have been uh, quite a few towns that have, have called out and said, please stay away from here. We're, we're doing our best. So, uh, so I think it's a, it's a time to be looking around your immediate area and finding out where you can walk and sit and stare and be quiet. And if you go to a gas station or a grocery store and you see someone from out of town, what is your concern for your community? Well, I think it's just in, increasing the, the number of contacts you're having from out, outside your area. I mean, we're, we're trying to, to stay as isolated as possible in this little town. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's challenging enough. But then seeing people coming from far away, you're, you're just going, okay, I, I understand you're moving through, but... Uh, <laughs> But do you really need to be here right now at this moment, or or is is what you're looking for uh, accessible to you where you're where you're already coming from? And I have to imagine you're also thinking about the healthcare system and the size of it in a small town, right? Yeah, yeah, we don't we have a a, a very active but small uh, health center here, and uh, and they're having having enough to work on just dealing dealing with us locally and having people coming in from the outside would, would quickly swamp us. And that includes our, our grocery store as well. And, and, uh, 
you know, there, there's not a lot in a population 500 town. Uh, so it, it becomes obvious when, when people are coming in. And I've got to say, I live in Denver and I have been hungering for the outdoors like you described. I just want a trip to the mountains or a secluded trail, but those really aren't available to me since I'm under orders not to leave the county. And honestly, a lot of our city parks are pretty full right now. But you wrote something in your essay that I really enjoyed. Forget the parks, seek out the spaces in between. What does that mean? Well, I I grew up in in Denver, and I know it's it's different now, but the some of the same elements are there. I grew up uh, following uh, ditches and going into fields, and you know, just looking for culverts or or retention ponds, anything at all that I could could go out and wander around. So I, I you know, even even an alley, um, there. What's important is is going outside because I, I don't think it's. I, it's a luxury getting outside, but I also also think it's a human necessity, physically, psychologically, spiritually, just just getting under the sky. And and I find places in cities. That's that's one of the things I I do is go to go to cities and look for wild places or natural places or or some spot that I can I can just get out of the you know drone of humanity for for a moment. And I. I think they're there it just it takes some searching and it also takes you know getting to a place and finding that there are a lot of people already there and turning around and and finding someplace else but we can still keep that sense of wonder even in an ostensibly citified place oh yeah i think it's it's nature doesn't end at the at the urban boundary it it is everywhere and sometimes just seeing the clouds sometimes just standing on the sidewalk and looking up is is something significant and you know another thing that i think about when people are going to the high country or whether when people in the high country are getting outside um is just the potential need for search and rescue are you changing how you get outdoors to stay safer these days yeah i'm i'm definitely uh, keeping an eye on, you know, looking at a at a route. I mean, out here there there are a lot of cliff bands and boulder fields, and you're you're looking at how you're traveling, and and you know, there's always that that voice in your head saying saying, oh, be careful on on this one. And now it's just a much louder voice, and you know, where I'm I'm looking at a route, going, you know, that's that's not worth doing today because the last thing you want is to be pulling search and rescue in. Uh, pulling EMS into to your situation. I when I go out in the backcountry right now, I think, okay, let's just act as if there will be no helicopter, there will be no rescue. So you have to get yourself out of here without calling for help. What would you do in that situation? What would you avoid? Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, certainly, Avery. I appreciate it. Craig Childs is the author, author of several books, most recently a collection of essays, Virga and Bone, Essays from Dry Places, that came out last fall. He lives outside Norwood, Colorado. His essay on getting outside responsibly during the coronavirus crisis recently appeared in High Country News. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, it's been clear that those most at risk are the elderly and people with certain pre-existing health conditions. The Colorado Sun recently took a deep dive and found that nearly a third of Colorado's coronavirus deaths have been in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. The Sun's recent reporting also tells the story of another place seniors found themselves in danger, a Colorado Springs bridge center that became a hot spot for the virus. Colorado Sun reporter Jesse Paul joins us by phone. 
Hi, Jesse. Hey, Avery. Jesse, the state has identified outbreaks of the virus at senior care centers. That's nursing homes and assisted living facilities. But it hasn't released the exact number of deaths and infections. The numbers change day to day. But at the time you published your story last Friday, you estimated at least 32 deaths at these facilities statewide. That was 29 percent of all deaths reported at that time. Without official numbers from the state, how did you come to that conclusion? So the state has a list of different nursing homes and assisted living centers where there are outbreaks of the coronavirus, but that information wasn't public until our colleagues at the Denver Post actually sent an open records request to the state and got a response. So that list is now available. So what we did was we found out which counties those facilities are in and called the county health departments there to try and find out what was going on. And for the most part, we got uh, a lot of cooperation and transparency from those And in the places where we didn't, we went directly to the facilities and asked them to give us an update on what was going on. And state epidemiologists are investigating outbreaks at at least 41 facilities across the state, according to the latest official report. What does an outbreak mean? So it's a little bit fluid, but our understanding is it's two or more cases, confirmed cases of the virus in a specific facility. So it doesn't necessarily mean that there has to have been a death there, but it could just be one or two patients or one or two staff members that are infected. So essentially, it's not an isolated case. Um, Could you give us an example of two nursing homes that have been hit really hard? Sure. So when we started calling around, we noticed that there were two nursing homes that have had particular particular trouble with this virus. One is the Centennial Healthcare Center in Greeley. When we called them on Friday or last week, they said they had six deaths. That's actually up to nine. So they've had three additional deaths over the weekend. And then the Libby Boards uh, Assisted Living Center in Centennial, and they've had four deaths. And what do state officials say about why they're not releasing the numbers of deaths and infections at these facilities? So the explanation has really been about, you know, needing to investigate these facilities before they can put out specific information about them. But obviously that doesn't comport necessarily with what the public health departments in those specific counties are doing because they were more than willing in most cases to tell us what was going on in terms of number of infected people, number of deaths, and the breakdown between staff and patients um, where that found. And we actually brought our findings to Governor Jared Polis and said, do you think this information should be more, more readily available to the public? And he said, yes, I do. And actually said, you know, I'm thankful that you guys exposed what was going on here because it's it's so prevalent in the state. And Vivage is a senior care center based in Denver. At least three of their facilities in the state have coronavirus cases. Their CEO, Jay Moskowitz, did not want to share data of infections and deaths. What did he tell you about why he wouldn't release that? Right. So initially they said they were not going to give us information about what was going on in their facilities. And then they said they were, and then they said they weren't. Um, they kind of backtracked over about a 24-hour period there. Um, Mr. Moskowitz told us essentially that, you know, he felt like the story was really about what his facilities were doing to try and prevent further outbreaks and also what they were doing to make sure that families were informed and that patients, uh, you know, had the proper um, entertainment to kind of manage through this because it's a, it's a difficult period for those centers. Um, but he also said, you know, releasing that information he felt like would cause hysteria and uh, more problems on top of of what his facilities were already dealing with. Now, we should say, obviously, it's not just Colorado where senior centers are hit hard. This is true nationwide, right? Exactly. I mean, most people probably remember what happened at the Kirkland, Washington um, nursing home outside of Seattle, which was kind of the first big outbreak in the nation. 
I think almost uh, 40 people died at that one facility. So certainly this is an issue that every state's dealing with. We just wanted to figure out exactly how bad it was in Colorado, and certainly it appears to be um, you know, a significant problem here. Now, seniors are vulnerable in many places, including where they socialize. The state's first coronavirus death was an 80-year-old woman who didn't live in a senior care center. But before the virus was even confirmed in the state, she went to a bridge tournament in Colorado Springs. Tell us about the consequences of that bridge tournament. So this woman played in a series of bridge games in late February and early March. And during um, those bridge games, she was actually symptomatic with the virus. Remember, this is days before the state actually had its first confirmed case of coronavirus. So people weren't being told to do social distancing measures. You didn't have to stay home. You could basically just wash your hands and you'd be okay. Um, and this woman ended up uh, exposing in total about 300 people to the virus uh, through connections that were made from people who were at that bridge tournament and that they went out. One person actually went to a choir where I think 100 more people were exposed just because of the fact that this person had been with the original woman. And ultimately, El Paso County public health officials um, were able to track at least four deaths just from that one woman's appearance at the bridge center. So it was really a perfect storm. And that's what the El Paso County public health officials found when they looked into the bridge tournament after her death. Um, And that's that's an instance of contact tracing, right? Right. And this is kind of an interesting thing to mention is that most um, counties now in Colorado aren't doing this contract tracing investigation anymore because there's just too many people who are infected. And, you know, this example of the bridge centers is a good reason why one woman ended up, uh, you know, needing to be traced to 300 different contacts. El Paso County now has hundreds of cases. So you can imagine how many different people are connected to each one of those cases at this point. So El Paso County is actually doing contract tracing still because they, they feel that's necessary. But most, um, most local health departments, and I think the state has also have also, you know, effectively moved past that. They, they're they're trying to contain this by um, strict stay-at-home orders, as opposed to trying to figure out everybody who was infected. And in this case, did the contact tracing result in more people self-quarantining, or do we know much about the effects of that? Our understanding is they tried to reach out to every single person who had a link to this original uh, woman at the Bridge Center, and that there were. Um, a number of people who were told to self-isolate just as a precaution. Um, it was interesting to talk to them about that because, again, this was really the first large cluster in the state. And I think they said it took them three days just to track down everyone who was connected to that initial woman. They had to learn about Bridge because they didn't know that much about the card game and, you know, figure out who everybody um, who that woman had contact with had contact with. So it, the, the net was just huge. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jesse. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Jesse Paul, a reporter with the Colorado Sun. Spring break is wrapping up for schools around the state. Denver Public Schools started instruction again today, but at least through the end of the month, that teaching will happen remotely. For many students, that means going online. This, as many people now work from home, and as social distancing guidelines limit evening entertainment options and push people toward streaming shows, playing online games, or video conferencing with friends and family. So a quick check-in, how's the internet doing? Comcast and CenturyLink are among the state's largest internet providers. Comcast compared internet usage at the end of March when stricter social distancing measures were in place to the beginning of the month. It was up 32 percent at peak times nationwide. 
Tony Werner is Comcast's president of technology, product, and experience. Here's what he told me. The speeds are holding up well. There's not any trends that uh, make me worry in the least. CenturyLink confirmed a similar increase in use, 35% globally in the last two weeks. Most of that increase is from people gaming and using video. A representative told me CenturyLink is keeping up with the demand, but it has had to make some adjustments to how it routes internet traffic. As colleges and grade schools transition to online learning, Comcast doesn't anticipate a significant change in internet usage because it assumes many students have been online during their break. Meantime, individual websites can run into their own capacity problems if they see a surge in traffic beyond what their server can handle. The Colorado Labor Department ran into this problem mid-March when it saw an unprecedented spike in unemployment claims. So many people were trying to file for unemployment at the same time that it crashed the site. That problem has now been resolved, according to Alex Pettit, Colorado's chief technology officer. As this crisis has unfolded, somebody might sit back and armchair quarterback this and say, well, you should have expected the unemployment insurance system to have a a big hit or you should have expected the." And really, a lot of this was these are out of scope or kind of a, a black swan kind of an event for us. As a consequence, we we were initially, I think, not as as quick as we should have been. Uh, and now we, we are in the mode where we can anticipate or we are anticipating which systems will be stressed next. And for the impl- unemployment system, are you continuing to add capacity to that or how is it doing? Well, we restructured the architecture. So the direct answer is we're not adding any more capacity right now. There's a bunch of technical architectural things we changed in the system, and that's increased or improved the throughput dramatically. As it improved its websites, the state also transitioned about 30,000 of its employees to work at home, which involved purchasing 1,800 laptops for state workers. When Governor Jared Polis closed schools and non-essential businesses, he urged child care centers to stay open. He wanted them to take care of kids for parents who are doctors, nurses, police officers, and other essential workers. But the decision has prompted questions through Colorado Wonders about the wisdom behind that move. Here's CPR's Kelly Griffin. Millions of people in dozens of states are working and learning from home to prevent the spread of the new coronavirus. So Colleen Ingham thought it seemed like a bad idea to send her two-year-old daughter to childcare when public school shut down. She and her husband were working from their Denver home with their four-year-old, but their childcare, Washington Children's Center, had pledged to stay open at the governor's request. I think all of us are in kind of a tough spot right now financially um, and just the uncertainty of knowing if we're going to be able to keep our jobs um, and having to pay additional money is, is tough for everyone. The Inghams had to pay $500 a week while they kept their younger daughter at home just to protect their daycare spot. I think it's up to two and three year waits at most daycares in Denver. Um, So it's not really an option to cancel our spot at the daycare because we would lose our our spot. And then potentially my daughter would not be able to get another spot in daycare, you know, once it's safe for everyone to be back in schools. Their facility is changing hands this month, so they won't have to pay again until May. But lots of families are paying for childcare they don't need right now. 
When the governor ordered the state schools to close, Diana Herrera made the same move. She shut down the Balswan Children's Center in Broomfield, which serves about 250 families. As the facility's director of education, Herrera says if other schools close for safety, the preschool should too. I completely understand the need for childcare for first responders. Uh, I am not sure that a group setting at this time is, is the right way to go. And as we know, children at that age, preschool age especially, they are the most prone to sharing germs with each other. But other centers are making a different call. Heather Griffith Harris and her family have operated the Young People's Learning Center in Fort Collins for 40 years. They are open for business. Griffith Harris didn't want to leave parents in a lurch and also worried she'd lose employees. Our parents have been super supportive. Um, we sent out a survey about what people can do. And, you know, a lot of parents, if they can, will for sure keep paying, you know, even though their kids aren't there to support the teachers. But, you know, not all of them can do that. Um, they're losing jobs. She says the center is following health department protocols, dividing rooms so that teachers and students are limited to groups of 10, They've thinned out toys so there's less to disinfect, and they wipe down surfaces a lot. Still, there are far fewer children showing up. Griffith Harris had about 125 enrolled before the coronavirus. Now there are about 30. None of us know what tomorrow is going to bring. None of us know, you know, for sure what two weeks from now is going to bring. The state is trying to address that uncertainty. It has a program to match the children of essential workers with open slots at child care centers. And it will cover the cost of care for those kids through at least May 17th. Michelle Barnes is executive director of Colorado Health and Human Services. She says the state has about 80,000 essential workers with children under eight. We encourage anybody whose work is essential right now to apply and get in the queue. And we hope that we can get enough providers to stand up that we're able to meet all the demand we need across the state. Barnes says so far the state has coordinated care for a couple thousand children. And at least one daycare center that had closed has reopened to serve children of essential workers. Brad Larvik is with Highlands United Methodist Church in Denver. Their preschool is called Nina Bees. The spots we're opening are for the duration of the stay-at-home order. That they once the stay-at-home order is lifted and folks can go back to more regular routines, uh, that our regular students would come back and have their spots waiting for them. And in the meantime, parents not using child care services might not have to pay. That's what Michelle Barnes from the state hopes will happen. As for the wisdom of throwing young children together who will at times sneeze, slobber, and touch each other, Barnes and others say caring for the children of essential workers is vital. They trust child care centers will keep kids and teachers safe so that parents can do their jobs. I'm Kelly Griffin, CPR News. We're getting a lot of questions about why this or that industry or business is considered essential, while most of us are ordered to stay at home during the new coronavirus pandemic. Today, we're going to look at the construction industry, everything from the I-70 corridor project to home building and office buildings that were deemed essential. That may help the economy, but it also exposes workers and their families to more health risks. David Sachs, our colleague at Denverite, has been covering this issue and joins us today. Hi, David. Hey, how you doing, Avery? Good to be here. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock issued the first stay-at-home order March 23rd, followed two days later by a statewide order from Governor Jared Polis. They both wanted construction to continue. They called it essential. What was their thinking? 
I mean, one of the things they were thinking is that construction keeps city and state infrastructure running, but it's also a force multiplier for the economy. So new roof, new rooftops have a cascading effect on commerce. They meet housing demand, lumber, furniture, tools, appliances. Sales rise for those things. Um, construction provides a space to uh, office people and open new businesses. Not that, not that that's happening a lot right now. And, of course, it provides jobs. Here's Mayor Michael Hancock. They are critical to the economic ecosystem, if you will. It's one of the few industries that actually touch the every just about every a stream in the economy. And so to shut them down would have been even uh, additionally devastating to the economy. And Hancock and Polis say this industry can maintain its work without putting employees at risk. How has that worked? It's mixed. Some in the industry are trying to maintain physical distancing. They might have trades, stagger their work at site. So like drywallers, metal workers, plumbers, etc. They come come into the home at different times or the building at different times. I caught Kirk Jordan on the phone just as he was heading out to get a COVID-19 test. He's vice president with Denver's Operating Engineers Union, and he spent time on I-70, on the I-70 widening project managed by Qit, a huge local construction company. And even though he was tested for the the disease, he thinks at least um, large contractors are basically able to take good precautions. People that have potentially been exposed are being sent home for two weeks and then being tested and just trying to play as safe as as best we can and truly enforcing the social distancing also. I mean, we don't need to be standing that close to each other. But others I spoke with admit it's not that easy. Uh, Pat Hamill is CEO of Oakwood Homes. Uh, It's a large general contractor that built literal neighborhoods in Denver, Stapleton and Green Valley Ranch. Um, And he and others in the industry are trying to make sites safer. It's a tall order. Here's Hamill. Is it happening 100% of the time? No. What is his company doing about that? So Hamill and his company are trying to drill the new guidelines into their workers and subcontractors. They have a strategy meeting every morning at 9 a.m. He's ordered signs to instruct people how to work safely, not to share tools, that sort of thing. And the CEO said he added overtime opportunities and about 20 days of paid off time. I'm sorry, paid time off to give workers more flexibility to stay home or make more money if they feel well. But state health, health officials say COVID-19, I mean, it's going to last much more long, much longer than 20 days. It hasn't even peaked in Colorado yet. Keeping the construction industry churning has sparked a local debate that mirrors a national one about whether preserving the economy should come at the cost of health risk to workers. Who are the people taking the risk? Bottom line is, if your job is operating and you don't show up, you may have to plow through your paid time off or lose wages. People I spoke with said whether a worker can stay home if they don't feel comfortable being on site. It basically depends on the company. But federal federal tax credits should help. So the Family First Coronavirus Response Act is an emergency federal law that helps businesses with 500 employees or less basically give workers, in some situations, up to 12 weeks off, um, up to 10 of it paid. Um, and then race is also a part of the conversation. So Chris Martinez, he's head of the Hispanic Contractors of Colorado, He told me that the local construction industry is mostly Latino, and he doesn't think construction uh, being quote-unquote essential is unfair along racial lines. But Ian Tafoya, uh, he's co-chair of the Colorado Latino Forum, says the decision disproportionately hurts Latinos. He wants to see the government pay people's rents and mortgages to release economic pressures on workers. Without the help, uh, he says people are basically faced with an untenable choice, working to feed their families or risking their health. 
and some companies are simply questioning the essential label. Tom Goulet wrote into Colorado Wonders and said he doesn't think his architectural woodworking company is essential. He does high-end installations in law firms and office buildings. What about his situation? Yeah, in fact, uh, he got advice from attorneys who said it didn't look like his business was essential. So he pulled his crews off, and right away his general contractors said they'd better get back to work. Goulet doesn't want to be at odds with those contractors uh, if they say he violated their agreement, but he also wants to protect his workers. So he urged them to stay home and, uh, that, that, you know, if they need to feel safe. Um, and he thinks having projects like his continue is a violation of the spirit of the effort to curb the spread of the virus. Here's Tom. One of the projects that we're doing right now is in one of the larger buildings downtown where we're doing an amenity center which is sort of a game room and a lounge, you know, with maybe a barista bar. Is that really a critical element in the Colorado landscape right now? Governor Polis did eventually revise his guidelines a little. He originally allowed a construction free-for-all, so no projects were off limits, really. Uh, Now the state government is asking companies nicely, sort of, to stop projects, to, quote, encourage deferral of non-essential work like home renovations. Um, but Polis did not draw a hard line in the sale, in, in the sand, and uh, Goulet tells us nothing has changed for his work sites. And what about enforcement? Who's watching whether a construction project is essential and whether workers are following safety requirements? So it's mostly up to the companies to police themselves. Denver's mayor says he wants voluntary compliance before he brings the hammer down, so to speak. Um, but a Denver inspection crew of just 24 people is tasked with enforcing the entire stay-at-home order, not just the part affecting the construction industry. Um, So inspectors had made about 6,000 contacts as of April 5th and cited 14 businesses. None of those were construction companies. If a business gets cited, it includes a court date where a judge can fine companies up to $999 and issue jail time. And before we go, I do want to just circle back and clarify earlier when you said we that Colorado hasn't reached the peak of its coronavirus cases. That's actually something that we don't know yet. We're watching all the different models as they come out. Yeah. Thank you so I mean, much health for officials. Health officials are saying that that they haven't that we haven't reached the peak yet in the state, but federal health officials disagree. Thanks so much, David. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Avery. David Sachs is a reporter with Denverite, which is part of Colorado Public Radio. State lawmakers are among the people who aren't at work right now. The legislative session is on hold during the stay-at-home order and the Capitol is shut down. When they do get back to business, they won't have lost any work days. That's because the state Supreme Court ruled that the session can extend past its normal cutoff date of May 6th since the state is in a public health emergency. So what will lawmakers face when they step back into the Capitol? Let's listen to an excerpt now of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Public affairs editor Megan Burley is joined by public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kinney. One of the most pressing things they'll probably have to address is what to do about the state's fiscal picture. Uh, Yeah, they got their last kind of update on state finances in late March when coronavirus was really getting bad, but only beginning to get bad. And already they were downgrading by a billion dollars their expected revenues for the next year and a half. That uh, is pretty painful. That's probably just for starters. Uh, I spent some time calling top lawmakers I talked to Senator Dominic Moreno, who's on the Joint Budget Committee. 
And he said that there's a really a really strong chance that the next set of updates, which should be coming within the next couple of weeks, will will be more dire, will be even worse. And it could get to the point, he acknowledged, that we'll be looking at, at even a shrinking budget next year, which would mean now, instead of having at least a, a little bit of money to catch up with the state's growth and new programs, they could be looking at reducing programs compared to this year. And Colorado's constitution requires the legislature to pass a balanced budget. Yep. So it's much different than than Congress. We can't easily raise taxes. So it has to be balanced. And I think we're going to see a significant shift in priorities from Democrats who are in charge of the legislature. You know, it's been almost a decade since Colorado had to write a budget with cuts in it. And Venta, huh. uh, I'm sure you remember, like, that is an excruciating process because everybody who's going to be a loser comes out to, to talk about what they're losing. And it's uh, it's painful. It's painful for, for state lawmakers. And they haven't had to do this, most of them, uh, in their careers so far. And just a few weeks ago, they weren't expecting to have to do this now. So people are grappling with what's at stake. What's really striking about a disaster like this is that this leaves the state with very little money to respond, even as you can see the demands are getting so strong. Like it, it, Recovering from a crisis is really costly. And Colorado just doesn't have, well, you know, we've got uh, some emergency funds that probably total up more than $100 million, but... That's nothing compared to the scale of response we're going to see from the federal government instead. Indeed, it's going to make that federal stimulus uh, incredibly important to the state. Uh, you know, the idea of the, the federal government stepping in to beef up the unemployment insurance program, mm -hmm. uh, direct payments to, to uh, folks to kind of get some of their money back into the economy. Uh, these are things the state can't do, um, but will happen because of that giant federal stimulus package. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, I wonder if if this federal stimulus package, this embrace of this modern monetary policy, is that going to change anyone's beliefs about the role of government? Well, we did have Republicans like Senator Cory Gardner support this federal stimulus package, and it had a lot of bipartisan backing. But I'd be surprised if, if this incredible moment in time really changes people's philosophical ideologies about the role of government and I, I could be wrong. We, there's so many unknowns out there, and I think a lot of it could also depend on how efficient things are run and how quickly the, the country can get back on track and improve the economy and people can start working again. So a lot of unknowns, but you guys may have you, – you both may have a different opinion if this will really change people's ideas of government. I honestly don't think so. And I think it's worth noting that the big thing that people, that individuals will see out of the stimulus package is a direct check. And that is actually a can be a fairly conservative idea, the idea that people are the best deciders of how to spend money. So this stimulus hmm. package, it doesn't create like a WPA, not that you could employ people right now because we're all stuck at home. Um it hmm. gives money directly to individuals, which is probably the most small government uh, way to enact a giant stimulus like this. <laughs> yeah. Um, one, the last thing that I'll be keeping an eye on, partially just because I've been so focused on the expansion of the unemployment program, which has been really dramatic. They've brought in whole new categories of people just temporarily who were never covered before, independent contractors, gig workers. Uh, you know, one thing we've seen in the past is it is hard to to take away a benefit once you've given it to a new class of people. So, 
I, I still suspect that some of that could amount to longer term change, especially because those gig workers are so important to our economy now. CPR News public affairs reporters Andrew Kinney and Benta Berkland and editor Megan Verlee talking about the uncertainty ahead for state lawmakers and for Colorado. They also discuss the politics of the pandemic in the latest episode of Purplish. You can hear the entire episode at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, perspective on the pandemic from a nurse in Moffat County. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is committed to covering emerging stories and delving deeply into the details of what's happening now without fear, hype, or compromise. This vital news coverage, as well as CPR's essential music service, is made possible through community support. If you're a member of CPR, thank you. Your support ensures impartial journalism, statewide coverage, and an informed public. Help sustain this community resource. Donate at CPR.org. Coronavirus first got its foothold in Colorado in cities and resort towns. It's now moved into the state's rural areas. Moffat County only has four positive cases, but health officials there have been bracing for the arrival of COVID-19 for weeks. CPR's Stina Sieg recently spoke with public health nurse Olivia Sheely about her experience. Olivia, you know, thank you so much for talking to me. I wanted to see, first of all, just how are you doing? Oh, well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm doing good. I'm tired. Um, this um, coronavirus kind of taken over our life here in um, rural Moffat County, but um, we're hanging in there. At this point, Moffat County has not been heavily affected with with multiple, with many cases that are confirmed. But do you have a sense of what would happen if Moffat County was heavily affected? I mean, do you feel like the county would have the resources to deal with that. Yeah, so for the past couple of weeks, um, stakeholders within the community, including public health, local state law enforcement, Department of Human Services, um, county commissioners, um, and members of the hospital, um, we've been meeting regularly throughout the weeks to keep track of what resources we have available to us, um, how we can adapt our daily operations in response to COVID-19, um, and then we keep a super close eye on personal protective equipment within the area, what we have available, um, and then working with other um, regional partners as to how we would deal with an influx of patients. And how do you feel about it right now? I mean, do you feel do you feel optimistic about it, or do you feel scared? I think it's scary because it's uncharted territory for everybody. But um, you know, I, I think we're prepared. We're educated. We take a close look at staffing and um, all those kind of safety measures every day. When I look at an area that's rural, but not a resort town like Mesa County, where I am, Moffat County, where you are, it seems like there's a little bit of an attitude like that this is a problem for the cities or for the fancy resort towns. Do you feel that where you are? I think I've gotten a sense of that. Um, you know, I can totally understand that, you know, Route County was hit harder because they are a resort town, same as like Aspen and Eagle County. But being only 49 miles between Moffat and Route County, a lot of workers go back and forth every day. So someone who might not have a high risk of being exposed in Moffat County, you know, going to work in Route County and coming back, they could possibly be exposed and then bring that back to our community. 
And then you've been active on social media, you know, both as a, I think, putting stuff out there as a nurse and then kind of being a little bit open about some of your personal feelings a little bit, you know, like how are people reacting to those social media posts? You know, excuse me, for the most part, people are receptive to it. You know, there's people in the community who don't want to take it seriously. But in my opinion, I feel that those individuals who put on the front that they're not taking this seriously or that they don't understand. I don't think it's malicious. I think it's more of a coping mechanism. You know, we're scared. We don't know what to do. So we, we try to protect ourselves and kind of put on that front of being, you know, big and bold. Um, I don't think, at least I want to believe that no one in the community would maliciously want to infect or, you know, go against these orders, that kind of thing. I just think everyone is scared and they have absolute right to be, um, but everyone's coping mechanisms are a little different. How have businesses been reacting to closures and precautions they're supposed to take? I I know that you've been working with law enforcement a little bit about uh, connecting with businesses, right? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of information out there from Governor Polis about what is essential, what isn't essential. Um, And we hope that none of it's left open for interpretation. So right now what we're doing is we're just going around as we receive phone calls of concerned citizens of, you know, this place is open, should they be open? And if we feel necessary, we go out and we make those contacts and have those conversations. There's no um, immediate criminal action taken. It's just, hey, you know, that this is the situation, you know, the best we can get over this and the quicker is to abide by these executive orders. We're lucky that we haven't had a business that won't comply But if we ever did come to that kind of corner, there are actions that law enforcement can take. Craig is the small place. Uh, Do you sometimes worry about when all this is over, whether there's going to be a rift between people who took this seriously and didn't take this seriously? Yeah. So I think the amount of people that, like I said, portray that they're not taking it seriously is pretty small. Um, it's been really amazing to see local restaurants come together. You know, there was a Facebook page made um, of putting all the local restaurant information, phone numbers and menus and supporting your local businesses and stuff like that. Um, Buying haircuts ahead of time. So to support your local, you know, hairdressers and barbers and stuff like that. I think in any situation, you're going to see the negative side of it. Like I said, people are scared, but the amount of outpouring, you know, People in the community are are selling masks for clinics um, by the hundreds um, and trying to really just support local businesses. I think for the most part, everyone's coming together as much as they can. And I'm also wondering, do you have any sort of go-to COVID-19 self-soothing thing that you do? Any sort of like comfort you take every night, like, you know, a glass of wine or anything like that? Yeah. Well, wine's always a given. That's that's for sure. But um, working from home and remotely has been kind of soothing in a way because I've always wanted to take my dogs to work. But being a nurse, usually dogs aren't allowed in, you know, the clinical areas. Um, so being at home and hanging out with them, um, my husband has been super supportive. He knows I'm busy and stressed, you know, and he's also an essential worker. He works for a local power plant. So he's he's on the front lines as well. So it's just having mutual respect and um, compassion and, and empathy for each other. Yeah. And I, I kind of feel like right now, 
we there seem it feels like there's a lot of that in the world right now. I think there's a lot of patience with people, with each other. Yeah. You know, and it's nice everyone wants to share information and be optimistic. And I think I always want to say assume good intention. Um, like I said, I don't think anyone would purposely want to be malicious during this. I think we're just using our coping mechanisms and um, trying to come out on the on the right side of this as soon as we can. And so what do you think people can do? What's the most important thing people can do to support health care workers like you right now? So the number one thing I think um, that's super important is just to stay home. For those of us on the front lines and grocery workers and you know, anybody who's considered an essential worker needs to keep doing their job and stay healthy to do it. And in order for that to happen, those who are, are at home, who maybe be furloughed or temporarily unemployed, just stay home because you don't want to risk those essential workers not being able to provide services, right? You don't want to not get your mail by the postmasters. You don't want to be able or you don't want to go to the grocery store and not have anybody to check you out. And then when you go to the hospital, you want to have healthy nurses who are ready to provide care, you know, at any possible moment. Well, thank you so much, Olivia, for talking to me. Thank you. Public health nurse Olivia Sheely speaking with CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg. We've been talking with all kinds of coronavirus experts in the last few weeks, but there's a group we still need to hear from. What I know about the coronavirus is that um, it's, well, technically pretty dangerous to older people like my grandma and grandpa's age. They're, they're in their 70s or 80s. This is six-year-old Evelyn. She's the daughter of CPR editor Megan Verlee. And we want to hear from more kids because it must be pretty strange experience to be growing up during a pandemic. And parents, we want to know how you're talking about the subject with your little ones. So if you've got a child 12 and under, we'd like you to conduct a short interview like this. My work wants to know what kids know and think about the coronavirus. It can spread really easily. And plus, you don't know that you have it at first. So, Megan's work, that's all I know. Send us the audio file at coloradomatters at cpr.org, and we may use it on air. That's coloradomatters at cpr.org. Finally today, music helps in tough times. Maybe there's a soundtrack to your self-quarantine or a power ballad for your essential work. We'd like to share what our staff is listening to as we report on the pandemic. For Colorado Matters producer, Alexandra McMahon, coronavirus has cast a new light on a familiar tune. So I picked this song, Dear Mr. Fantasy by Traffic, because, I don't know, I feel like it embodies this time and these feelings that we're all collectively going through right now and I I think it was like early March and I was listening to one of the classic rock playlists I made on Spotify and this song just kind of shuffled on and I was like whoa you know it just kind of took on a new meaning for me listening to those lyrics and you know especially the line do anything, take us out of this gloom, sing a song, play guitar, make it snappy. Part of it is, you know, talking about 
the artists struggle to constantly perform and, you know, make that sacrifice and audiences demanding to be entertained. But I think it also says a lot about how we rely so heavily on music to make us feel better and get us through the really hard times. And I think that that is more relevant than ever right now. And I think that uh, Dear Mr. Fantasy is comforting, but also really sad right now. Dear Mr. Fantasy by Traffic has gotten a lot of play from Colorado Matters producer Alexandra McMahon. You can hear that song along with other staff favorites for working from home in a Spotify playlist we put together. Search CPR News on Spotify to listen. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. <laughs>